How are you feeling? Good. You look good. By a round of applause, let me hear. How are you feeling? How are you doing this morning? Awesome, awesome. Well, again, my name's Daniel Sutton, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, our lead pastors, of course, are recovering from some surgeries. And in their absence, they've entrusted me to share the word over the next few weeks. And if all goes according to plan, um, the Thomases will be back in a couple of weeks, and Pastor Chris will be preaching in March. So it's very, very exciting for sure. But I'm also very excited to begin this brand new series through the book of Philippians. Y'all, I am pumped about it. It's been a lot of extra prep work, but it's been enjoyable. It's been charging for me. And so I'm excited to unpack this book, this letter. Um, Raise your hand if you are a letter writer, if you're a greeting card sender. Let me see. Where are you at? Okay. Okay, so snail mail aficionados are in the building. My dad still sends us cards and letters regularly, and he'll send at least four out of five of us our own card and letter when he does. And there's still something special about receiving a letter or a card in the mail, isn't there? Raise your hand if you know what I mean. It's kind of, yeah. So even though all those hands that just went up, you like receiving a card, but you don't send the cards. Interesting. Interesting. No, it makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. It's kind of nostalgic to know that someone took the time to hand write a letter to you, to thoughtfully pick out a greeting card for you, and then to put it in the mail. And then you go out to your mailbox and you open it up and you see it has your name on it. And it's not a bill. It's so, so nice. Now, my dad, when he sends a card or a letter, he'll add drawings. He might even cut out comic strips from the newspaper and put them in there and even add some commentary along with it. So we really look forward to getting our letters from Papa. Whenever friends or family write a letter to each other, they leave a lot unsaid because the author and the recipient know each other. They can easily read between the lines because they both know the context of what is being said. It's not quite as easy to make sense of a letter that wasn't originally written to you. We're about to read through a letter and unpack a letter that was written from the Apostle Paul to the members of the church at Philippi. And as we get started, I want to lay us a foundation, give some background information that will help us as we navigate through it. So first, let's start with the author, Paul. With the exception of Jesus, no person impacted the history of Christianity more than Paul. Paul was a Jew, a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, and he used to be a supremely committed Pharisee. Up until his dramatic and life-changing encounter with Jesus, he was famous and infamous for passionately persecuting Christians. But after this encounter with Jesus, everything changed. Raise your hand if you've experienced an encounter with Jesus and saw everything change. Are you thankful? I'm thankful. See, when you meet Jesus, everything around you doesn't automatically change, but you do change right away. You're not made perfect, 
But the Bible says that the old is gone and all has become new. So Saul was made new and Paul became a missionary and a church planter. And he was responsible for bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And that was very controversial. That was scandalous because many believed, and some still do, that salvation through Christ was only available to the Jews. Paul brought it to the Gentiles, to everybody else. Paul inherited Roman citizenship from his father. This is important to note, especially in this letter, because those in Philippi, many of them were also Roman citizens, and they understood the benefits and the privileges that came along with that citizenship. Well, long before Paul wrote this letter, he made his first trip to Philippi. We read about that in Acts 16. I encourage you to do that this week. It wasn't a scheduled stop on the agenda, but God had other plans. How many have walked through that before? Throw a hand up. Yeah, absolutely. You had your plans, God had others. I just shared a verse with the serve team this morning. It was Psalm 5, verse 8. And David said, you know, Lord, make your way plain so that I can follow in it. That's how Paul lived his life. It's like, Lord, you make the way plain and I'm gonna follow in it. Paul and Silas on this first trip to Philippi find themselves down by the river and share the gospel with a group of ladies. They lead one of them to the Lord. Her name's Lydia. And then another day, they cast an evil spirit out of a slave girl. And what happens? They get thrown in prison for it. That didn't stop Paul from getting back to work as soon as he was released and even while locked up in prison. And he even went back to Philippi another one or two times. Now, in Philippi, there was no synagogue. There was no church. There weren't enough men in the town for it to qualify for one. That's why Paul and Silas find themselves down by the river to share the gospel. And that's where the first formal presentation of the gospel was made in that area. They stayed about three months, and things did not take off like they had hoped. He led a woman, that woman Lydia, to the Lord. He also led the jailer to the Lord, where he was locked up and chained, and the jailer's family. That was the humble beginning of the church at Philippi, those few new Christians. And those few new Christians viewed Paul as their spiritual father, and he would maintain a close relationship with him for the rest of his life. This letter to the Philippians was written about 10 years after that first visit to the city of Philippi. And at the time of writing the letter, guess where we find Paul? Back in jail. Yep, this time in Rome. And he had already been locked up for about two months. And so Paul's letter was partly a thank you letter, a thank you note, thanking them for the support that they had given him in a number of ways. Support that was very much snail mailed or you could say horse mailed or donkey mailed, camel mailed perhaps. It, was, it took a long time to get there is the point. The distance between Rome, where he was in prison, and Philippi, where this letter traveled from, about 800 miles, like going from New York to Chicago. It would have taken about one month to get there. Epaphroditus was the delivery guy. He brought some financial support, and he himself was also part of the support package by helping Paul through this difficult time. Epaphroditus almost lost his life and was getting ready to head back home to Philippi, so Paul sent this letter 
back home with him. And Paul says, thank you. But he also offers some encouragement to the people. He had learned that the church at Philippi was facing some opposition. And instead of comparing his situation to theirs, that's what we do so often, right? When we hear someone else is having a tough time of it, oh, well, let me tell you about the tough time I'm having, right? Instead of doing that, and Paul could have done that, he was in jail, chained to a guard. Instead of doing that, he focused on the courage and the confidence and the contentment and the commitment that he had in and through Christ Jesus. What if instead of comparing ourselves and our situations to others, church, we would focus on the contentment, the confidence that we have in Christ, that we would take courage and stay committed to living for him? Amen? Paul told the Philippians to respond that way to their opposition because that's how he responded to his opposition. He did it with joy. Now, in this letter, he's also interested in finding out how the church of Philippi was doing. And since there was no resident apostle, no lead pastor for the church of Philippi in his absence, he took the opportunity to share some doctrine, share some sound teaching with them. And while this letter was originally written to his dear friends at Philippi, Paul knew that it would circulate and be read by other churches. See, back in those times, churches would actually share letters from the apostles so that they could all benefit from it. Isn't that beautiful? Now, of course, God knew it would circulate even further than that, and we have it today to look through. And all throughout this book, we're going to find this theme of joy. This is a letter of joy. You could say Philippians is an ode to joy. There's at least 16 references to joy in these four short chapters. Paul is not selling happiness, but joy. Even though happiness is what many people are pursuing, right? We even find it in our Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then in 2006, it was the title of a great Will Smith movie, The Pursuit of Happiness, happiness with a Y in the movie title. But every talk show host and every self-help book, every magazine cover, they've got steps to find happiness, don't they? Every product commercial says, buy our whatever, and you'll be happy. You know, buy our deodorant and you'll be sure, right? Just whatever it is. Many people take medication to try and feel more happy. I googled how to find happiness. About 807 million results in 0.71 seconds. People are looking for happiness. But that's not what Paul is selling. Paul is pushing joy. Because Paul knew that happiness fluctuates, right? But joy is fixed. Happiness is moved by what happens or happenstance. Joy is stable because joy comes from knowing that God is still in control no matter the circumstances. True lasting joy isn't something you can find in the world. As we've mentioned a couple times already, our pastors... Hi, guys, are recovering from major surgeries. And while they may not be happy about it, would you be? I wouldn't be happy about it at all. So while they might not be happy that they're at home watching online this morning, if you know them, you know they're still full of joy because they know God is still in control. 
And God has been showing his mighty hand all throughout this process. Man, moving their names to the top of the list to even be seen in the first place. And then like the next day having surgery and just, man, they've got joy in the middle of this. And we need to keep in mind joy, especially joy in the hard times as we track through this letter to the Philippians. Paul's letter to the Philippians shows how he experienced joy on his journey and how we too can experience joy on our journey. So we're going to read this letter and we need to read it on two levels. First, what did Paul want to communicate to his dear friends? And second, what does God want us to learn and apply from it? So now that we've got a, a decent foundation, we're going to read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 today. And then we'll go back and we'll unpa- unpack them verse by verse. But one final uh, disclaimer before we jump in. Y'all, it would be easy to take 10 to 12 Sundays, if not more, unpacking this letter from Paul. But we're going to try and do it in six, okay? And I mention that because there's going to be parts that we will zoom in on and focus on and break down a little deeper. But there's going to be some other parts that might not get broken down as much. Don't be upset, okay? We'll be painting some areas with a broad brush, okay? Is that fair enough? And we'll be using the New Living Translation as our main text just because it reads so easily. So if you have your Bible or if you have the app open, Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it'll also be up here on the screen. And I do want to plug the app this morning too. You'll find after we read this verse in its entirety, uh, each verse again along with like the main point of each verse. So that could be helpful. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, greetings from Paul. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the elders and deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Paul's thanksgiving and prayer. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter that wasn't originally written to us, but you knew it'd get to us. And so, God, we ask that you speak to us through it today. Give us hearts to receive 
what you have and make it so easy to, to listen and, and to understand. Lord, we thank you for your word that's a lamp unto our feet and a light for our path. Light it up this morning. Lord, show us more of yourself in it today. Let it be easy to teach this morning in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Everybody said? Amen, amen. Okay, so back to verse one. We typically would start a letter with dear so-and-so, dear John, dear Abby. Letters in Paul's day began by identifying the writer, not the recipient. So Paul starts by introducing himself. He also acknowledged that Timothy was there with him. Timothy was with Paul on his second trip when he went back to Philippi. He wasn't deterred by being thrown in jail the first time. He goes back that time with Timothy. So the Philippians would know who Timothy was, and they would like hearing that he was there keeping Paul company in jail as well. It's likely that Timothy physically penned the words that Paul dictated. After all, again, Paul was literally chained to a Roman guard for 24 hours, three eight-hour shifts. I don't know if it was one arm, if it was both arms, if it, I don't know how it was set up, but 24 hours a day chained in prison. He's likely dictating this letter that Timothy wrote the words down for. Timothy was also a co-sender of five of the other letters that Paul sent. And Paul refers to himself and Timothy differently in this letter than he does in almost all the rest of them. He refers to them as slaves of Jesus. Some translations would say servants of Jesus. This is very different. He typically would introduce himself as apostle, for that was customary, and that's also what he was. But he didn't do that this time, not in this letter to the Philippians. He used the word slave. And that makes many of us uncomfortable. It rubs us the wrong way because we don't want to be a slave to anything or anyone, do we? But perhaps in this context, we should reconsider because a slave to Jesus is someone that belongs entirely to Jesus. They've not been forced to do anything. They willingly offer themselves entirely to Jesus and they are completely devoted to his service. So Paul was using this to kind of come down to their level. Okay, he was an apostle, a missionary, a church planner, but he was putting himself on the same level as Timothy and everyone in Philippi that he was writing to, all those new believers. And those believers, remember how the church at Philippi started? It was Lydia down by the river, it was the jailer, and it was his family, however many there were. But now it has grown because we see in verse 1, he's writing to all of God's holy people. That statement would have been, wouldn't have been necessary for a church of four to five people. All right? It had grown. And then he goes further. And the church leaders and deacons. Now this church has some overseers. It's grown. And he had learned that from Epaphroditus, that the church was growing and even had leaders in place. And might I suggest that that's why they were facing opposition in the first place. Because the enemy will always try to stop something that is growing. So Paul was moved by this news. The church is growing, and he was pumped about it. In verse 2, Paul wishes them grace and peace. 
He actually does this at the beginning of every one of his letters or epistles. And this is not just a cute Christianese thing to say. This was not customary like saying God bless you after someone sneezes. No, this too was intentional. Paul desired that these believers would experience more of who Jesus is. Well, Jesus is grace. Jesus is peace. Jesus is everything else that he offers us. You can't separate who he is from what he offers us. He is the personification of grace and peace. So Paul was both asking and by faith declaring that God would pour out his unmerited favor and loving kindness and that they would experience full reconciliation with God and wholeness in him. Paul knew all about grace and peace through Jesus. And he knew that the Philippians would understand that true grace and peace only come from Jesus. In verse 3, he says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. I want to look at that in two different ways. First, notice how personal Paul's relationship is with his father. He thanks his God. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. We just finished singing child of God. No longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. Listen, child of God, don't you ever forget that you are his and he is yours. He could have so easily said, every time I think of you, I give thanks to God. But he made a point to make it personal. He was communicating to the church of Philippi there that the relationship that you've begun with God is with your God. And he's so big, as Eric prayed, he's big enough to be all of our God, all right? Maybe that's just one little tweak you can make to your prayer life that will change a whole bunch for you. Don't ever forget that you are his and he is yours. But look at this another way. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Talk about a compliment. Wouldn't that make your day if someone told you, man, Caitlin, every time I think of you, I thank God. Wouldn't that, look at the smile on your face. That would just make your day, right? Guys, Valentine's Day is coming up. Maybe you want to jot that one down. <laughs> Baby, just like Paul told the Philippians, every time I think of you, I thank my God. I have so many Christian pickup lines coming back to mind from my days of youth. That You know, when you check the tag on the shirt, just what I thought, made in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> Or the old, back before everybody had a cell phone, hey, can I borrow a quarter? I told my mom I'd call her when I met an angel. You know, stuff like that. Hey, this could go right along with that. Every time I think, I think of you, I thank my God. But I wonder, who do you have in your life that you need to tell that to? Hmm? Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. We've all got somebody in our lives that needs to hear that and would be good for us to tell them that. In verse 4, Paul continues that he prays for them, and every time he prays for them, he does so with joy. Another version says a heart full of joy. This is the first of the many references to joy that we'll find. And remember, all of these references to joy are while he is writing this letter in prison, chained to a guard. Just keep that in mind, okay? Give us some perspective about the, the tough times that we're walking through. I don't know about you, but I don't always pray from a place of joy. Paul did, and we should, and I want to. Who wants to with me? 
Yeah. In verse 5, Paul thinks of them. He's thankful for them. He prays for them. Why does he do all of that? Why do they mean so much? Because they're his partners. He's quick to express his thanks for them because they're his partners. I think we should be quick to show gratitude and express our thanks to others. For some, I know people that have a hard time even accepting help in the first place. I can be guilty of that sometimes. And then I know some people that once they've accepted help, it's hard for them to even say, thank you. I don't know why. We should live in such a way that it makes it easy for other people to express their gratitude for what we've done in their lives. And we should be quick to express our gratitude when others help us. Amen? So Paul thanks them for their support and for being his partners. And the Greek word for partners is koinonia, which means fellowship. He was thanking them for their fellowship. This makes me think of Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring. Raise your hand if you are familiar with the books and or the movies. I know there's at least a couple more, more than I thought. Yes. All right. Well, for those of you that aren't familiar, let me paint a picture for you. It's a fellowship of nine characters who band together to protect a special ring. The precious. <laughs> because this ring is key to defeating the forces of evil. And it's a very unique band of characters that fellowship with one another. Two men, a wizard, an elf, a dwarf, and four little hobbits. An unlikely fellowship. The wizard had a lot of powers, but he was a lone ranger, used to operating on his own. The elves and the dwarfs, they did not get along at all. The men had their strengths and, of course, their glaring weaknesses. The hobbits didn't have much going for them other than loyalty. They were basically children with big hairy feet, and they were always hungry. <laughs> and when they were all thrown together... There was a lot of animosity, a lot of suspicion within the group. But once they all realize the importance of the task, their contempt gives way to friendship and fellowship. And before long, they're willing to lay down their lives for one another and for the cause. And in fact, before it's all over, two of them do sacrifice their lives for the others and for the cause. This unlikely fellowship, this brotherhood, goes up against impossible odds, taking on orcs and trolls and every other kind of evil you can imagine to protect the ring. And Paul talks about how much joy he gets from his partnership, his fellowship with the Philippians. The Philippians were in fellowship with Paul in the work of the gospel. And I brought up the whole Lord of the Rings thing because it, perfectly illustrates the use of this word fellowship fellowship is not coffee and donut in the hallway fellowship is laboring side by side with one another for the work of the ministry and the gospel so when we walk in real fellowship with one another as paul is talking about we are not the fellowship of the ring but we are the fellowship of the king we are the fellowship for the gospel's advancement. Amen? So just as these nine characters devoted themselves to guarding that ring, using it to fight evil, we must fellowship and devote ourselves to guarding the gospel. 
and using it to defeat the evil that we see in our world. This is the kind of relationship that Paul and the Philippians had. Paul regularly put his life on the line. He should have died more than once. He was thrown in jail lots and lots of times. Epaphroditus, the delivery guy, he almost died for the work of the gospel as well. So that's what we're talking about when we see partners, koinonia, fellowship, that fellowship of the ring type of brotherhood that we should have willing to lay our lives down for one another and the cause of Christ because it is an eternally important task that we are tasked with, amen? And by the way, that kind of fellowship can be found in community. Thought I'd just throw that out there. Paul mentions at the end of this verse that the Philippians helped spread the gospel immediately. Like they immediately began this partnership with him, immediately entered into this koinonia, this fellowship with him. And that is so impressive to me. It takes a good long time for many believers to spread the gospel, partner in ministry, experience real koinonia, and unfortunately, some never do. So Paul's thankful for how they partnered with him. In verse 6, Paul reminds them that it was God alone, not him, that began the good work in them. He didn't want them to get it twisted and that he was somehow responsible for the work that was taking place in their lives and for the growth that the church was experiencing. He was always pointing them back to God, the source, the root. It was God alone. And then full of faith, he tells them that God will continue that work he has begun. He will complete that work that he has begun. He told them, in other words, someday you're gonna lack nothing going to be full, complete, whole in Jesus. See, we know salvation happens in an instant, but the process of becoming more and more like Jesus takes a lifetime. The fancy word is sanctification. Maybe you've heard that word before, or maybe you've heard someone say, God isn't finished with me yet. Have, maybe you've said that. Have you ever said that? Have you ever heard that? That's so true, and it's such good news. Amen. Clap your hands along with me if you're happy that he's not finished with you yet. Amen. So in verse 7, we see the church at Philippi partnered with Paul in the good times, and then they stuck with him in the bad times, continuing to love and support him in those bad times. We see a word in verse 7, share, if you want to underline that. It's the same exact Greek word as partner. It's koinonia. It's fellowship all over again. They didn't abandon Paul when it got tough. They didn't abandon their faith in Christ when it got tough. And because of their faithfulness, Paul was unashamed to express how he felt. He let them know they had a very special place in his heart. Our culture teaches people, especially men, to control or restrain their emotions and if they're going to communicate those emotions and feelings at all, to just do it through actions, but not with words. Right? It's not manly to, to tell somebody that you love them. You just, just show them, right? But words are powerful. Paul knew that, and so that's why he's writing what he's writing. And I love seeing how Paul tells them how much he loves them and how much Jesus loves them at the same time. And then he even said that, he was patterning his love for them based on the love that 
God had for them. Now, the literal translation of, I long for you with the tender compassion of Christ, or another version would say, I long for you with the affection of Christ. The literal translation is, I yearn for you with the bowels of Jesus Christ. That might not be one you want to hold on to for Valentine's Day, but the Greek word for bowels encompassed the upper intestines, the heart, the liver, and the lungs. Think about what all of those things do in our bodies. Think about what that means. These were the seat of emotions, okay? This was a profound and deep and passionate thing to add into this letter. We all know in part how much, how deeply Jesus loves us Paul was trying to say that he loved them just as much as Jesus did with the love and affection of Christ himself, with all that was within him, with every breath, literally, with every heartbeat. And at first I wondered if that would be offensive to God, to have his love compared to the love of someone else, to have his love compared to the love of anyone else. But isn't that the exact kind of love that Christ wants us to have for one another? Isn't that the kind of love that shows the world we belong to him? I think so. So let's ask ourselves a personal question this morning. How good am I at expressing my love for others? Oh, they know I love them, do they? Have you told them lately that you love them? Do I feel for others what Paul felt for the Philippians? He loved them like Jesus did. That's intense, y'all. Do you feel that way about your spouse? Do you feel that way about your children, your extended family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your Christian brothers and sisters, the lost? If we love people that deeply, then we've got to be doing two things. We've got to be showing it and telling it both not one or the other it's not an either or it's a both and actions are important obviously and they do often speak louder than words but that doesn't mean words are not important and not necessary a wife asked her husband why don't you tell me you love me and the husband replied I told you 20 years ago that I love you, and if I change my mind, I'll let you know. I don't know why I hear that in like a country western accent, but we learn, we learn from Paul's example here in, in this first part of the letter that expressing our love through words is a wonderful thing, all right? So let's develop the both and of Expressing the actions of love and the words of love from our heart, our, our lungs, our intestines, the, the seat of our emotions. I wonder, parents, have you ever been asked which kid's your favorite? Huh? Do you have a favorite? We don't have a favorite. Or do we? This kid, yeah. What's your name? Sage? So... I don't think he feels like he's the favorite in his family for him to point that out. Let's pray for Sage. 
I get the feeling that the church at Philippi is Paul's favorite. I don't know if he had one, but he makes it pretty clear how much he loves the church at Philippi. He writes a little differently in this letter than a lot of his other ones. So, in verse 9, love is another fruit of the Spirit that was growing in the lives of these new believers. Love for the Lord, but love for one another. And Paul was praying that it would continue to increase, continue to grow their love one for another. Love is so vital to everything in our spiritual lives. And no matter how much love we have, our ability to love like God can always increase. Always increase. So Paul prayed that it would. But not just that their love would increase, but also that their wisdom and understanding or their knowledge and understanding would increase. And these are two qualities that help keep our love on track. See, the more knowledge of the Lord we have, the more we're going to love him. The more that we understand his ways and how much higher they are than ours, the more we're going to love him. The more knowledge and understanding we have of his love for us, the more we're going to love him. So Paul desired so deeply that these new Christians would mature in their relationship with God and become real followers by loving God more and more. And it was not just emotional, it was practical too, growing in their knowledge and understanding. In verse 10, this is gaining spiritual wisdom from studying the scripture, doing what we're doing, getting into community groups in our homes around the city. But this is also applying your spiritual wisdom in everyday life. I know some people that know more scripture than I do. I've been a pastor for a number of years now. I've got a decent understanding, a decent um, file of memorized scriptures up here. I know people that know a lot more than I do, but their life doesn't reflect it at all. That's not the goal. We've got to apply the truth of the scripture in our lives. When we do that, we begin to see what really matters. And, and what really matters in life is how we live it. Applying the scripture that we've learned and, and memorized and read will help us in how we live our life. And the goal is to live pure and blamelessly, verse 10 says. This is not just for our benefit. It's for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. And this is not referring to perfection, to live a pure and blameless life. God doesn't expect any of us to be perfect. Paul didn't expect the Christians in Philippi to be perfect. You know, he was just talking about sanctification, the process of becoming more like Christ. But Paul has more of their motives in mind than their behavior because he knew the connection. He knew that if their motives and their mind changed, then their behavior would follow. In verse 11, we see this word fruit. Fruit equals proof. Okay, the fruit of our salvation is the proof or evidence of our salvation, which could also be called righteousness. And we cannot produce this righteousness, this righteous character on our own. It's only produced from the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts and also through growing in knowledge and understanding of Scripture. And when we allow the Holy Spirit to produce this in us and then we walk in it, God is glorified. God is praised as we see in verse 11. And that's what we should be living for. 
And this happens when we begin to change the way we think. Right thinking produces right living, which honors God. Right thinking produces right living, which honors God. This growing love that we have for the Lord and for one another and and these pure and blameless lives that we're trying to live and the fruit of righteousness is not meant to win credit for us, but to bring glory to God. And Paul was reminding them of something in verse 10 that he mentioned in verse 6. That's about the work that God is, is, has started and is continuing in them until the day of Christ. We see that mentioned in verses 6 and 10. And I want to encourage us this morning that God is still doing just that. He's still working in our lives to bring us to completeness and maturity in him. Amen? Until the day of Christ, he'll keep at it. So in closing this morning, let me remind us that, again, Paul is writing this letter with an attitude of joy. From the perspective of joy as he's positioned in chains to a guard in prison. Why did Paul have joy in the midst of all this? How could he tell them to be joyful? We'll discover even more answers to that question in the coming weeks. But Paul had joy in part because he practiced what he preached. What do I mean by that? Paul, as he mentioned in verse 1, was a sold-out slave to Jesus, fully surrendered to the will of God. He knew the will of the Father was better than his own. And guess what? Joy was the result. Paul knew and walked in the grace and peace that he only found in Jesus. He had looked for it elsewhere, but he found it in Jesus, and joy was the result. Once he became a Christian and began to, to go proclaim the gospel, he lived his entire Christian life in koinonia, in real fellowship, partnering with other believers, and joy was the result. Paul knew that as far as God had brought him, and it was far, he still had a long way to go. God was still working on him and sanctifying him. Joy was the result. Paul had so experienced the amazing and transforming love of Jesus that he knew how to love others in the same way. Joy was the result. He stayed teachable, continually growing in knowledge and understanding. And joy was the result. He learned how to think differently, which enabled him to behave differently. And he knew that that honored God. When we know we're honoring God, guess what? Joy is the result. Church, joy is not based on your circumstances, what you have or don't have. Joy is not found through a process of three, five, or even seven steps. Joy is when you're in your deepest valley, but you can still believe for the mountaintop. Joy is when you're at your darkest point, but you can still see a glimmer of light. Joy is when you are utterly confused, but you still know that God is in control and the Holy Spirit has a special plan for your life. Psalm chapter 30, verse five says, weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Nehemiah 8 verse 10 says, do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The prophet wouldn't have said don't sorrow if there was an opportunity to be sorrowful, but he's saying choose joy. 
in the midst of that sorrow, and you'll find strength. If we want to be strong in the Lord, that strength comes from the joy of the Lord. True joy is only found in the person of Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. Don't look for it anywhere else. If you do, you won't find it. Like Paul, you too can experience joy in your journey, no matter the circumstances. And at times, those circumstances might feel like being chained up in prison, like Paul literally was. How will you respond? Let's respond how Paul responded, with joy, knowing God is still in control. Joy is how a believer who knows their future is secure in Christ will respond in difficult times. Church, let's start taking our cues that Paul gives us and daily choose joy. Amen? If you would bow your heads, close your eyes. Perhaps you're here this morning in person or viewing online and you've looked for joy everywhere except in the person of Jesus. And because that's where you've looked for it, you've come up short. Well, if you want to give Jesus a try this morning, then I'm going to give you an opportunity to do so. The Bible says that we've all missed it. We've all dropped the ball. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. No one is perfect but God. And the penalty for that, the consequences of that, is eternity separated from God. But God offers us a free gift in his son, Jesus. He's the only way that we'll have joy. He's the only way that we'll make it through the circumstances that don't make any sense and are painful and aren't fair and aren't planned. So if you wanna invite Jesus into your heart this morning, I want you to pray out loud so you can hear it with your own ears because the Bible says if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, that you will be saved. So everyone, if you would, just repeat this prayer out loud. And for those of you doing this for the first time, just believe it with all of your heart. Say, dear Lord, I need you. I want you. I've looked everywhere else for joy and haven't found it yet. I look to you. I give you my heart. I give you my life. I surrender. Capture my heart and mind today. All that I am or ever hope to be, I give to you. And all that you are, I receive as mine. I receive your joy. I receive your grace. I receive your peace. I receive eternal life. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name.